Hello, Christy. Hello. We meet once again. Yes. How uh, this is the first one that we've recorded since Shell October has gone live. Yeah, that's exciting. I'm always so excited, but this is like actual, <laughs> legitimate exciting, not just I'm me excited. <laughs> yeah, so I suppose I should, uh, as usual, uh, welcome the listeners to Shell October, a most regular podcast. This is going to be me and Christy talking again, but uh, Christy, you've you sort of sent me some instructions about <laughs> yeah. this episode. Uh, I, I had some homework I had to do. Well, I thought it'd be fun. I like, I don't know, I like making people make lists of things they like. Because I feel <laughs> like they have to think about it and prioritize and, you know, look in internally on why they like something in order to put it in a list. I hate doing it myself, <laughs> but I like making other people do it. But, you know, how this goes, I can't just be like, so, give me a list and I'll just list it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I have also made a list of top five uh, Sherlock anything. Media, books, TV show, anything re- remotely related to Sherlock Holmes. Mm. So, how do you, you, I go first then, I guess? Oh, yeah, if you want to. Okay. So, number five for me, I picked Sherlock Hound, which is a 1984 animated series for kids. That was a very interesting uh, Italian-Japanese joint production series that's like a proto-Studio Ghibli kind of venture. Uh, Yeah, you know of it. I, I do. I've got it on DVD. Um, yes. <laughs> kind of not not an unheard of uh, phenomenon uh, yeah. to have a, a European-Japanese co-production yeah. adapting famous works of Western literature with cartoon That was animals. a thing for a while. <laughs> yeah, we had um, uh, Dog Tanyon and the Three Musker Hounds. Um, yes. And uh, Around the World with Willy Fogg, which I think was Spanish and Japanese. Which was around the world in eighty days. I don't know that one, but I'm gonna have to. Oh that. man, it was good. <laughs> that's a whole. That's a that's that's a separate podcast, if I'm honest. Um, okay, so uh, Sherlock Hound. <laughs> yeah, so Sherlock Hound. It's a TV show with anthropomorphic dogs, and it's not particularly loyal to the source material at all. <laughs> um, but you can't beat it that's though. Putting it, it's so that's good. putting it mildly. Yeah, <laughs> it's so good. Anyway, like it doesn't. It's its own complete 100% thing. It's so charming that its flaws as a Sherlock Holmes story or series is like, does it matter? No one cares. <laughs> it's just amazing. <laughs> Moriarty in Sherlock Hound is like my favorite thing ever. He's a steampunk criminal mastermind professor wolf man in a white top hat and suit. You can't, I mean, come on. <laughs> it's amazing just saying it. Uh, it's cartoony, it's a little childish, but, you know, it's it's part of its enjoyability, I think. Uh, I don't have a whole lot of notes for that one, because it's mostly just unbridled praise for Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> I know it was partly conceived by uh, Hayao Miyazaki. Yes, he wanted to... obviously the... people know from his work with Studio Ghibli. Yeah. He did, like, six episodes, and then something about the the Conan Doyle estate was like, hey, what are you doing? And then they had to stop production, and Miyazaki literally was like, I'm out. I can't do this. You're suffocating me. And he, like, went and made Studio Ghibli. Like, it was his last hurrah before uh, <laughs> going and forming part of Studio was, Ghibli. 
was this bef- was Sherlock Hound before or after he did Castle Cagliostro, the uh, Lupin the Third movie? I, I, I want to say after Sherlock Hound's nineteen eighty four, and I don't remember when. The I Lupin... think Castle Cagliostro was after that. It was. Then that was his next thing, but that's still not Studio Ghibli technically. Although it has like all the players involved. <laughs> yeah, the uh, certainly in the, in the UK, the the DVD for Castle of Cagliostro, although it's made by I think I think it's published by a completely different company. They still tried to make it look a, enough like the Studio Ghibli <laughs> the DVDs that Disney were coming does. out. Yeah, yeah. So it's like just <laughs> just different enough that they couldn't get sued over it, but also similar but... enough that it would evoke recognition. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. You think the art style would do that enough for anyone in slightly <laughs> in the know? But uh, I guess not. <laughs> and Miss Hudson in Sherlock Hound, for anyone who's never seen it, is about us, and it's amazing. That's the best part too. That was, I think, um, a very, a very sort of Miyazaki twist on it because Miyazaki oh, yeah. likes that's his fingerprints. For you sure. know, female protagonist. You could kind of tell that. If if Miyazaki had had his druthers, then he'd just be making a show about Mrs. Hudson. I think he's really, really tried to lead it that way. And they were like, but we've been commissioned to do a, Sh- <laughs> a Sherlock Holmes show. So he has to be in it. And he's like, I don't see why, though. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's an old interviewer. He's like, yeah, I didn't like that part. <laughs> <laughs> that seems very Miyazaki. Yeah, sounds accurate, yeah. Okay, so that's five number four is i don't know if you've heard of this it's called it's called homes on the range (laughs) yeah i know i know i know yeah it's amazing okay so get ready okay (laughs) hold on i need a minute it's okay okay so it's called homes on the range it's a book series by steve hawkins smith and it was like I recently reread it because I was, I was so excited for this. But I, I was like my first venture into Holmes, reading anything that was sort of like Holmesian that wasn't directly from Conan Doyle. Like I came into later, you know, like in high school. So yeah. it was like my first venture <laughs> out into the world of uh, Holmes-inspired nonsense. And so it has like I have kind of a fondness for it. And... As the name implies, and it's a it's an amazing name. One, it's a pun. Two, I I feel it does a good job of reflecting away anyone who would read it and not want to read it anyway. You know what I mean? Like the name alone, just kind of barriers. If you can accept the name, then you're like, all right, I'm on board. I'm good. This is probably going to be a fun time. And if you can't get past the yeah. name, then you're probably like, <laughs> what? It's one of those. It's one of those things where like the title is like a like a bouncer in yeah. a club. Exactly. If you can get past it, then it's it's probably for you. Yeah, uh, but it is it follow. It's a story that follows a Sherlock Holmes super fan who is named or nicknamed Old Red, and his younger brother who is nicknamed Big Red. And Old Red is this. He's not old. He's like younger, under thirty or something. But he's got an old soul. He's kind of a crotchety old man personality. And his younger brother um, is this big hulking and in my head handsome hunky cowboy man so (laughs) (laughs) and uh so the younger brother his real name is Otto or Big Red uh he was like the youngest out of seven kids and his family put 
all this money into his education because they're poor Kansas or Oklahoma or something farming family and they wanted him to be educated so he could rise or help the whole family get out of the just the pure labor part of farming and segue into the business part of farming um but then you know flood sickness old westy <laughs> things happen and it ends up it's just him and his older brother and they take odd jobs doing cowboy stuff and big red reads to old red out when they're in the pastures and prairies and all that stuff and big red um comes across the redheaded league and they both are have red hair and their friends are like oh you should read this and he reads it to his older brother who is illiterate and he becomes completely obsessed with <laughs> sherlock holmes everything and so he's constantly hounding his younger brother to read him more and find more stories and stuff like that and he spends years practicing what he calls deducifying uh to try to be like his hero sherlock holmes and you know <laughs> and come come some strange uh cowboy winter they actually he actually gets a chance to use his homesian uh, abilities he's tried to hone in on to be like his hero and uh it's just a clever, fun, cute little, you know, on the range murder mystery story <laughs> with these big brother cowboys. And the best part about the book, and this is why I want to tell you about it, because I'm not sure if it's quite your thing. Westerns, I don't like Western film or shows personally, but I've I've read my fair share of like Louis L'Amour and stuff like that. So, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I have I have a big, huge family and I have a grandpa. I've got several grandpas, but I have one of them. Is uh, <laughs> big like the last kid in twelve from Oklahoma. So like I don't know. I just and my dad's an auctioneer of cattle. Like I have a big tie to Westernish culture in my life. So I, it doesn't. It's not a big stretch for me to read the Westerny dialogue and think and like translate it in my head to actual like how people talk. I feel like that's a problem some people have when they like engage Westerns. They're like, oh god, it's just like trying to read a Cockney accent for. <laughs> extensive period of time people are like i can't do this <laughs> this is too much for me do you ever have that problem not really no really um, every once in a while i'm like uh... I, I i don't know what it was i mean um if i had to guess i'd say it was possibly uh reading the asterix books when i was a kid because in that um it that uses like phonetically written uh accents a lot, and, yeah. and fonts to convey different languages so it can be exhausting, Maybe especially when you're a kid and you just no. want to read it. You're like, come on. Come on. Oh, uh, that and uh, the moles in the Red Wall books with their <laughs> extremely oh, broad uh, West Country accents. Yeah, yeah, mm. that's... It's not like that. <laughs> Thank God. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, the reason this is on my list um, is because this the book does something that I feel is very, very slight and very clever. When you're reading it, you don't know that the real names are... Gustav and Otto um, inhabit the same narrative space as Sherlock Holmes until the later half of the book. So the entire time you're reading, you assume Old Red loves the character Sherlock Holmes, but then it's revealed in the story that Sherlock Holmes is real and he's a real man, and that that shifts the story into a a new and intense place. Like suddenly, the world of the story isn't just conveniently mimicking a Holmesian tale; it actually is of the Holmesian world. Wow. So I, it's it's an interesting shift in dynamic that I think intensifies the story because it's like it's cute and you're like da 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 and then all of a sudden <laughs> you learn that and you're like oh shit <laughs> you're like oh things can happen and go down here <laughs> like this suddenly because suddenly, you're already so trained to 
to acknowledge Sherlock Holmes is like, oh, you know, this big literary thing. So even though he's not directly in the book, his presence is there. And then it becomes known that he's a real person in the narrative. And then you're like, oh, <laughs> I don't know. It was just a really interesting, fun dynamic and shift in, in the middle of a towards the end of a story that was really fun. I think, I, I think I'm probably going to have to check those out because that does sound like the kind of thing I'd enjoy. Yeah, I mean, they're goofy, they're silly, they're easy to read. But but I have always really enjoyed them, and I've read the majority of them. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> I feel bad because I feel like I'm doing all the talking. Uh, so, number... F- when am I on now? Three? Three. Yes. Three. Young Miss Holmes, which is a manga by the legendary Kaoru Shintai. Have you read Young Miss Holmes? I haven't. I don't think I've, I don't think I've even heard of it. I know you have read Sherlock Bones. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. Yeah, because who wouldn't pick that up? I mean, he's a dog. I'm going to read that for sure. <laughs> okay, well, Young Miss Holmes um, is a manga about a 10-year-old girl named Christine Holmes, and she's the niece of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Seven Seas published an omnibus in English of the series years ago, and I, I literally bought it without opening it or flipping it through it. I, I didn't even look at it until I got home. Um, one, it has a very retro-y 70s shoujo visual style to it that I really, really like. And mm. I have no doubt probably freak some people out because this girl's eyes are big. And, <laughs> um, are, we, are, we talking from, like, are we talking like gray alien big? Yeah. Or like <laughs> most of her face is eyeballs. <laughs> Um, I love it. I absolutely love it. That's oh, yeah, the kind of too. like shoujo type of nonsense I like. Interesting fact, though, this comic is stars a ten year old girl, and it's Sherlock Holmes stories, and it's printed in a Senin magazine. So it's for, in theory, adult men, <laughs> <laughs> and there's nothing in it remotely. Like it is you. I think um, it's so funny. I'm getting ahead of myself, but a lot of libraries picked it up because they're like, oh, a good book for kids manga. But it has a crossover with Dance and the Vampire Bud. Oh, yeah, I know about that. <laughs> and, uh, and then some parents, I guess, were complaining about <laughs> the book, and then libraries had to, like, recall. They're like, if you put Young Miss Holmes <laughs> is considered possibly not age appropriate, like, it's all confusing. And I was like, uh oh, someone didn't know about Japanese publishing. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> wah, wah. Oh, anyway. <laughs> It's, uh, it's, the whole series is pretty much a practice in inserting female characters into canon, which is fantastic, in my opinion. It, it goes through the canon home stories, but with the addition and, f- and turn of focus on, you know, this precocious girl and her, her badass maids, Nora and Anne-Marie and her tutor, um, Amelia Grace Dunbar, who is actually a character from The Problem of Thorbridge. Mm. And, uh... It's just a really enjoyable series that alters Holmes' stories, and it's cap- but it captures the fun and thrill of, of chasing after Holmes when you're reading. Because she's always behind him. Like, she's a 10-year-old girl, right? She's not going to solve half the stories or before he does. Um, but it's nice, and it's fun to go through, you know, original Holmes canon with just a, a kid inserted into it. So, now two, number two, you know this one. This one is a show called Elementary. Yes, I've heard of it. (laughs) Yes, you've heard of this. Anyone who hasn't, (laughs) Elementary is a wonderful adaptation of Sherlock Holmes' 
characters and stories um, with an amazing cast, and it intrinsically from the inside out attempts to modernize and to pull the essence of these stories and characters into the contemporary world and setting. I personally feel better than, say, BBC Sherlock, but, you know, people are going to fight about that forever, so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, compar- uh, the comparisons were kind of inevitable. Yeah, I mean, you know, this modern Sherlock, you're going to get a back and forth going on. But this one, Elementary, has Lucy Liu in it. Like, can't really beat that. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, very much the position that I'm operating from. (laughs) Yeah. Certainly. Elementary is one of my top five Holmes things, so. Yes. There's a lot of, so there's a lot of crossover there. Uh, I did talk about it a little bit in a previous episode, but um, for me, Elementary is probably greatest. The, The most interesting thing that it's done is to make its version of Sherlock Holmes a criminal because he's a recovering drug addict so you know like from the very first moment that we meet Holmes in elementary he has been a criminal for years and I think that adds like a really interesting element to the character um again you know it's come up before but Holmes in the stories is willing to bend the rules and laws if he thinks it you know if, if if he thinks it's serving a higher notion of justice but yeah. he, you know he also does things in the books that would be criminal now like you know as does watson you know carrying a firearm yeah nowadays is illegal in the uk and also holmes's use of cocaine um <laughs> is also not surprisingly now given what we know about cocaine now illegal <laughs> rather than doing what sherlock does where it's kind of vaguely alluded to they've kind of made it like one of the cornerstones of the character which i suppose kind of would make a bit would make a bit more sense that sherlock holmes's drug use possibly would be more pronounced in the modern day given that the degree of sensory input would be heightened yeah that that's what i i mean when i say it feels like it's from the inside out trying to pull the essence you know it's not just oh our character's gonna have a drug habit it's gonna be this is a well-known character that had this part of you know his his characterization and events in his original stories and we're gonna put those in the modern times and we're gonna escalate it accordingly you know it's not gonna be like (laughs) could you have a story of a sherlock holmes in modern times who occasionally uses cocaine and it's displayed as you know oh well (laughs) you know (laughs) you can't do that now so it has a responsibility to it that i uh deeply deeply appreciate if that makes sense no it does the way the elementary approaches being an adaptation of the home stories because like because obviously like some of the stories have nothing to do with sherlock holmes you know as a concept other than you know being a riff on the characters whereas some episodes are like directly related to like sherlock holmes stories and you know like yeah. the, they're informed by conan doyle stories and they will bring in sort of like, you know, some elements. So sometimes like even in the same, you know, the same episode will incorporate different elements from... Those are like a mashup. <laughs> kind of, yeah. <laughs> Elementary's approach is a good one in that it doesn't make a lot of the same mistakes that I think Sherlock did. Yeah. I, I, I think the reason I like Elementary more than Sherlock is that Elementary Sherlock is still very fallible, which... 
you know, the homes of Conan Doyle was. Yeah, extremely. Uh, whereas <laughs> Sherlock and Sherlock is um, slightly less so. He's almost superhero-esque in a weird way. That's how it, it comes off eventually. He's kind of written the way people write about Batman in the way that I really don't like, where he is like an infallible ubermensch. <laughs> Pretty much. And what he says is gospel, and he's always a step ahead, and he's never wrong, and he, you know. Yeah, he kind of comes across as a less three-dimensional version of Sherlock Holmes than the one in the stories. Conan Doyle wasn't setting out to write, you know, a great work of literature when he wrote the Sherlock Holmes stories. That was, you know, as good as they are, they were pretty obviously written for the money. (laughs) You know, as are most stories, but, you know, I don't don't think, you know, Conan Doyle, I don't think, had any kind of... He didn't have a large invested attachment to what he has he created let's put it that way yeah he was he wasn't sort of coming from it from a place of artistic ideals <laughs> i think i yeah that's true but one of the things with elementary that was nerve-wracking in the expectation of it and then <laughs> when you when you see it executed was for me very emotional um it's the character kitty winter who comes from the Sherlock Holmes story? Oh, what is it? The uh, oh, the illustrious client, the yeah. adventure of the illustrious client, and uh, she's a recurring character in Elementary from in season three onward. And I really love Kitty. Okay, I might get emotional. Um, <laughs> uh, she starts out as a very wounded and angry woman who who base she's seeking revenge, um, and she's a mess. And through her mentorship and slash distraction of learning from Sherlock and her beautifully evolved friendship and relationship with um, Joan Watson, Kitty starts to heal. In the show, she is never disbelieved by the show. You know, Sherlock is written to let her make her own choices and she's given a clear agency within her heart and within her arc. Um, and she's never defined by her victimhood. And I, I had... N- I've never seen um, a female abuse and rape victim treated with such, I don't want to say, uh, grace and support from within the narrative, (laughs) as well as by the creatives on television in my entire life so far. And that was such a huge impact to me, Um, her entire everything. (laughs) And And it's not as simple as... And it's hard to explain. I always describe elementary as gentle because it, it has feels that sense of responsibility for the story that's telling and the characters it has, and it wants to show things as they are, but not be overbearingly grim dark, but without you know softening the edges so much. And with Kitty Winter, that's a character that they did so exceptionally well from my own perspective, anyway. That it it, it really stuck with me, and I will be you know an elementary stand for the rest of my life just for <laughs> that one character <laughs> yeah. who you know i just that's the main reason elementary is on here i love everything about the show but in particular it's this kitty winter character and what they did with her was phenomenal to me mm. i think the for me the best thing about kissy was that she was permitted not just you know as as you said not just within the narrative but also in like the metatextual sense, um, she was permitted to be angry. Yes, which very rare to see. 
doesn't always come across in you know in in stories of you know of in stories like Kitty's, but it never it never sort of questioned the you know the narrative, and the show never questions her right to be angry and to react the way that she does. Yeah, it's phenomenal, and it's another one of those things where it feels like it's not just as simple as we're going to put this character in modern times. We it feels like a very gradual leaning in of a true adaptation of this character that in the original story is angry and is hurt and is all these things but still a very simple depiction of that type of anger and that Mm. type of situation and the the show is like we could do one episode of this but it's not necessarily fair in this day and age to have just this one episode with this type of character you should space it out you should actually really lean into this type of story arc and for a procedural show on American television, you have stuff like, I mean, you got Law and Order Special Victims Unit where every week is like another, a story like Kitty Winners, but it's wrapped up in 45 minutes, you know, yeah, and, and with... it has this flat <laughs> lack of dynamic to it. And then you're on to the next victim. You're on to the next victim. The The it's... format makes yeah. it easy to you know whether it's intentional or not that kind of format will make it easier to sensationalize and, and in a way trivialize the subject yeah. matter and, and and you know and i can say that those type of shows have their heart in the right place but it, it's still you're still utilizing this victimhood and you're still utilizing this absolute terror to to further <laughs> characters that are stationary and are fixed and are there every week as opposed to these other characters that only float in for their misery and then are disappeared you know and with kitty and that a part of that is because they they're based on sherlock holmes stories like <laughs> like the procedural tv on tv is based on the holmesian you know rhythm and mm. then type of story and so i thought it was phenomenal that elementary decided to slow it down and take it a lot slower with this particular character from this original story. I think that, you know, isn't is an adaptation of I think the approach of Sherlock Holmes stories because although they you know they do deal with you know that kind of like subject matter occasionally and they often deal with, you know, like murder and theft and you know various things like that. The, you know, they were still removed from the kind of the, the penny dreadfuls and the shilling shockers and the police gazette. Yeah. Like the the much more like sensationalist stuff stuff that kind of you know it kind of like reached its um, apogee with the uh, Jack the Ripper murders, which yeah. did was you know which became like a huge like press sensation, and was kind of almost like seized on in a in an almost like voyeuristic way. And it still is. <laughs> and I think um, the home stories kind of never indulged in that kind of thing and i think for elementary to take the kind of approach that it did with kitty's storyline that in itself is a modern approach to the kind of ethos that it had where it it doesn't feel voyeuristic and and if care has been taken in its execution it like in a metatextual sense kit you know the introduction of kitty as a character really impressed me because she's there from the start of season two and it was i think in terms especially in you know i mean i don't want to sound like snobbish or anything but especially in terms of american network television you know to have your second season completely alter the dynamic that had been established by the first season you know that's the kind you know it like introduction of 
of a, of a plot element, which you know, and and it sounds, you know, it, it's like it's doing a disservice to Kitty to refer to her as a plot element, yeah. but the introduction of her as a character, you know, changes the dynamic between Holmes and Watson that had been established in season one, and I think it was very, you know, it was a very, you know, as well as the obvious bravery of them handling Kitty's story in the in the way the way that they did, it was kind of brave of them to just to even have kitty there as a character in the way because of the way that she did unavoidably her presence alters the chemistry that was established in season one yeah and they they do the thing where at first you're like oh the two the only the two main female characters are gonna hate each other and they're gonna be all (laughs) when and you know and i I, I have just this initial recoil where i'm like because it does change the (laughs) dynamic and i'm like this is something new and i don't know if i'm gonna like uh, <laughs> but they they shut it down within like the third episode they 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 make it very clear that that's not what's really going to happen and they slowly start to reveal that you know kitty is is hurting she is she's doing her best to heal as best she knows how and then it turns out joan's going to give her the tools she needs to you know work it out even better and that is fantastic and it was great so it takes a little while. And that's the thing with elementary that I'm not sure is going to appeal to everybody is it takes its time. It truly is a slower paced Sherlock Holmes show as opposed to, you know, the Sherlock, BBC Sherlock, which is very, very, very amped up from the editing to the dialogue to the delivery to the acting to the everything mm. is very heightened. The cinematography is very heightened. You know, elementary's brown. <laughs> it's got warm tones. It's got space. Like they live in this big brownstone as opposed to this cramped you know, tiny apartment. It, it's it's completely different altogether, and I just I don't think some people are gonna like it, and that's fine. But if you're <laughs> if you're gonna if you're gonna dig in, at least know there's things like Kitty Winter, these amazing gems within a season of, of every every season, pretty much you'll find something like that with Elementary. I love Kitty. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the pacing of Elementary is definitely one of the biggest draws for me. The way that it handles its sort of like ongoing like overarching narratives uh, as well as the case of the episode there'll be an ongoing narrative you know it's like from episode to episode and the, the way that they pay you know they, they do pace it really well like for instance there's i think it's you know it's even in the first season where holmes is you know, like holmes taking a slightly too cavalier approach to investigation results in a detective you know, who, oh, yeah. like a, a police detective being injured in the line of duty and potentially, you know, damaging his career prospects. Like he, like he, you know, his hand. yeah, he gets shot, no. and part of the injury involves his hand, which will affect his ability to carry and operate a firearm, which means that he wouldn't be able to actually work cases and would be and stuck be on a, a desk. Detective, yeah. yeah. So, and obviously, he has less than warm feelings towards Holmes because of that. And like I think in I think in a lesser version of this show, it would be wrapped up by the end of the episode or maybe the episode after. But it's not. It's actually, you know, it does. It takes a few episodes for it, for the kind of equilibrium to be reestablished. Yeah, you know, I'm so happy you brought that one up. That's such a good little kind of mini arc <laughs> of character work. Elementary, I think, and one of the ways that Elementary differs from Sherlock. And the compar- like, and like I said before, the comparisons are going to be unavoidable. But I think one of the main ways that Elementary differs is it has the confidence 
to focus on the characters who aren't Holmes and Watson. Yeah, like, it gives everybody time. It has the you know the confidence to believe that the audience will be you know just as invested in uh, Captain Gregson and Detective Bell. You know, as you know, I mean, because obviously, like for something like Elementary, you like you want to see it for Holmes and Watson. Like that's you know that's the draw. Yeah. But the the confidence that it took to, you know, what would shift focus once in a while. Yeah, I can't imagine Sherlock focusing on like an episode. I mean, obviously the the series is structured differently because you know it's like twenty five yeah, or it's like twenty four episodes, episodes of like anyway. US network TV. That's different yeah. from a three episode BBC series like every two exactly. years or whatever it is. But still, I can't imagine. I, I can't imagine Sherlock giving the focus the elementary gives to its supporting cast i think it, it's too focused on you know holmes and watson and of the two of them more holmes than watson whereas elementary you get much more of an ensemble cast and it's not so you know here is here is sherlock holmes the keystone of the universe you know, it, it, everyone it, else rotates around him yeah it more sort of shows him as you know as part of a mechanism and the thing with the detective bills hand being injured due to Sherlock um, that elementary also has more confidence in is it it doesn't it frames Sherlock in the wrong like he shouldn't have done what he did and he and it it's about him working up towards apologizing as well as Bell you know choosing to forgive and all that but that's a difficult thing to do with a main character of anything <laughs> is putting them in a position where the audience is like, geez, that's kind of effed up. <laughs> and then <laughs> having the character work through that themselves to recognize, hey, actually, you know, that is bad. I did a bad thing. I need to go and apologize. And it, and it's it's not painful for him, but it, it's difficult. And it's hard and it's emotionally straining and it's, you know, it's kind of scary for everybody involved and it doesn't try to push it along too forcefully. To where it's, you know, that happy little, like, well, yeah, for, I'm sorry I messed up. Oh, okay, I forgive you. Like, I think the first time he apologizes, Belle's like, eh. <laughs> like, we'll see if I, I mean, thanks for the apology, but I don't really want to see you right now. <laughs> like, you know, and that's, that's amazing. That's neat. It, it's almost shocking at this point that that's the way this, <laughs> this show chooses to be, as opposed to just pushing, 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 you know, these characters forward and, and the cool story and the plot and taking time to really literally stop and focus on how everyone's feeling <laughs> how everyone you know let's take some time to talk to each other like that's what i like about elementaries it feels very <laughs> it feels very star trek almost where it's like well let's pause in the middle of this fight and have some big talks right now because i feel everyone has some issues we need to talk about like that's what elementary does all the time and i love I've, it <laughs> I've, I've honestly never thought about it but now you mentioned it elementary kind of is very star trek in its like tone and ethos it is. It's one of those things where you, you say it, you're like, no, it's not. And then when you really think about it, you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> it is. <laughs> anyway, Elementary's amazing. We love it. We'll probably we come do. back to talking about it some more. But that's that's number two. <laughs> I get the box set of the previous year's series. That, that's like, you know, every, every, like, every Christmas for the last four years, I've got, you know, a season of Elementary. Aww, and a, I... <laughs> I hope to continue getting them for many years to come. I, I, I have the first two, and I've seen the others, 
But when the show ends, I'm, I'm the inevitably put out like that big fancy box set or whatever. I'm gonna get that, and I hope it's in the shape of a beehive. Oh, that'd be great. I, I, I should send them a note, <laughs> just in case you didn't know. Oh, that's your big box set should be a beehive, <laughs> exactly like Sherlock's. Yeah, well, that that's a great idea, but it's also bullshit because I would absolutely buy that despite owning like <laughs> all the series individually. Okay, okay, if, okay. I bought all of the X Files individually and then they came out with this big box set before the second film and i was like oh shit and i bought that and then they had (laughs) the new series and so i'm like well when the next box set comes out i guess i'll do that too and each one i get i like donate the last one i sent one to a friend and then the other one is when i get a new one is gonna go to somebody else so that's what i decided to do yeah i'm i'm like i'm like that with books um i oh, i yeah. bought comic book series bone by jeff smith oh yes and then they came out with a big one i own that in like four different versions i've got the i got the trade paperbacks and then the i got color. the the paperback one volume edition and then uh-huh. i got the hardback gold leaf like oh, individually wow. signed and numbered what about the colored ones and then I, they brought them out again in color because it was a black and white comic. And then they published it again in color, and I bought those too. So I have this. I bought this series four times in four different formats. I only have I'm smart. <laughs> the bone. I only have the huge, like, complete book that you can't hold up because it hurts your wrist. Um, one, but I yeah, want to get the huge one in color. Lord of the Rings. Tone. Oh God, it's so big. You could kill somebody. <laughs> it, it's it's the Lord of the Rings of comics. It pretty much is. Uh, anyway, <laughs> talk about phone now. Um, number number one. I'm such an idiot. Number one is the Granada Homes series. Yep. So unimaginative, right? Like that's just. <laughs> I'm talking about all these interesting adaptations and versions. So much praise for Elementary, and then I'm like, but my favorite one <laughs> is the really well, really traditionalist. I, th- <laughs> I think you know that's. That, that's not really surprising to be honest i mean it's kind of the best version it's it's so irritating though it's like irritatingly the best version because i love it so much i really like it and then i'm like but why and i'm like because it's just like the stories and i'm like but why do i want just like the story some like somebody had to have done that at some point like somebody you know yeah it's it's kind of like it's a little bit like the lord of the rings movies like at some point, yeah. someone had to just make as close to the books as possible, and actually do you know, yeah, put it up on a screen for mass consumption. And I think the kind of Granada Homes is kind of like that, where it is you know, it is just they they approached it with <laughs> an attitude where they they wanted like as much fidelity to the the Conan Doyle stories and as possible time and all that, yeah. They didn't give in to the this like the stereotypical like mimetic version of Sherlock Holmes, with you know the houndstooth cape and the deer stalker and the pipe. <laughs> yeah. You know they actually did go through and say right you know he only smokes a you know like it's stuff like he only smokes a pipe when he's thinking the rest of the time he smokes cigarettes. You're you're exactly right. Like fine like fine attention to detail. It, the the Granada series to me works as if you're a fan of the stories. It's really appealing because it has those little things where you're like, hee hee hee, smoking a pipe. Like, it's, it's, <laughs> if you know the small, strange characterization details, it's like, yay. And then if you don't, 
it kind of works towards expressing the reality of the stories that then again you know we talked about how these are stories that people have they have an understanding of maybe possibly without having any direct contact with and the granada series does the thing where it's like oh well he's not wearing a deerstalker cap you know he's not he has kind of this interesting personality that if you're only thinking of a sherlock removed from the material you might not have a working understanding of and i think that's neat (laughs) that it's you know the stories but as they are (laughs) yeah and like and even when they do because like they do put him in a deerstalker and uh, once in a while yeah yeah, but it, it's not like he's the, in the country. <laughs> it's not like the heavy, like houndstooth tweed pattern. It's like very sort of light and dove grey, and you know, it, it's their own. The Basil, of... <laughs> Rathbone movies. I I think the the interesting thing about the Granada series for me is that I think they were kind of they kind of wanted it to they they were approaching it in the way that people tend to approach like adaptations of Jane Austen. <laughs> yeah yes exactly you know we get like the you know exactly the right type of country house and like and all the costumes are you know perfect, perfected like down Georgian to the last dress. detail yeah <laughs> yeah granada homes is interesting because it approaches the homes canon as a period drama yeah rather than oh it's you know it's going to be like you know it's a victorian police procedural but it's going to be like the sort of Hollywood cartoon version of Victorian Britain, whereas you know they they approached it as like you know like right let's dress it as for everything from the costumes to the sets will make it as accurate as possible. Yeah, and and that kind of thing I think often you know it's it's the kind of thing that people sort of talk about in terms of realism, but I don't. For me, it, it wasn't so much that they were trying to be realistic as they were trying to be accurate. Yeah, it's a fine line with that series. I think it, you know, it comes from a much more. It's not some. It's not. It. It never feels like it's nitpicking. Yeah, and even when the stories are more extreme or silly, they they still follow through with a, a groundedness to them that that it's, you know, that it it works out okay, visually and story wise. So good on them. <laughs> uh, and you know, it's actually funny because one of the things. Uh, I, I I had seen some of the scattered parts, you know, of the Granada series growing up as a kid, and then I came back to it once I got into homes and all that. And uh, one of the things that I really liked about it was every once in a while, like I, again, I was like in high school, and sometimes I'd read a home story, and I I'm not gonna say I got confused, but like the clarity of it wasn't as it wasn't so clear. And I don't know if that was because sometimes it's the language or the, you know, the way it's written or just the type of mystery it was or I'm just too removed from some of the vocabulary or what. But watching Granada Holmes, I'd be like, oh, because <laughs> I'd have a visual, you know, accompaniment to it that I'd be like, oh, I get it now. I understand what they were trying to say. Or like, I understand the big reveal better now because Holmes is explaining it, but sometimes the ex- explanation wouldn't quite follow through for me and that would be you know that's my problem as a a reader um so like the five orange pips is the one i first comes to mind like for some reason the first time i read that i was like what is happening i don't understand (laughs) and then i watched it i was like oh cool so i I really like that aspect of it as personally my own you know understanding of some of the stories i've read i'm like oh i got that wrong Mm. (laughs) like i misunderstood it's 
little aspect here, yeah. It's a lot like Shakespeare. It's because, like, the way that Shakespeare is taught in schools, you know, where it's just reading the text from a yeah. book. You, you know, can you, miss a you're, lot. <laughs> you're never, you know, it, it's never going to communicate this the the story and then the words and the intent or tone. That's a big one. Or tone as well as it would when it's being delivered by an actor. And, you know, although the Holmes stories were, you know, were written as, you know, books to be read, I think seeing, actually like seeing it delivered by actors and the cast that they got for it was amazing. Amazing. And not, you know, not not even just, you know, Holmes and the two Watsons that they had, <laughs> but even like the most like incidental characters were cast so perfectly and with the same kind of attention to detail that you know you you can't help but understand them i think like in a way um even even the most kind of even the more sort of esoteric period specific stuff that i think other another you know other adaptations might cut or rework to be more immediately apprehendable to to a modern audience the way that the homes the the granada series frames it and delivers it it's all kind of it, it it has a very like internal consistency that that really helps get stuff across that perhaps wouldn't if it was just if it was the more sort of like cartoon version it would like it, it would seem too incongruous yeah if, if they had the i mean i don't want to be like harsh but like the matt frewer Holmes series which absolutely was the you know the Hollywood cartoon Sherlock Holmes the kind of attention to detail and fidelity to the to the text um would would seem silly almost but yeah. because the Granada series actually you know like has like or like has has its hat fidelity to the text it kind of it, because it, it has that internal consistency it all works really well and I think that's probably why it's I, I would guess that it's probably most people's favourite. I would imagine. Probably for that reason. Yeah. Certainly in, in the English-speaking world. Yeah, definitely. Do you want to know something that might cause yes. you to be consumed with a powerful envy? Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Okay, go ahead. Right. I swear um, to God, if you met Jeremy Brown, I'm going to kick you. No, 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 no. Nothing, okay. nothing so... <laughs> I would cry and be like, but no. If I'd met Jeremy Brett, that would have been the first thing I ever said to you when we met. Because <laughs> the it would first be thing the... you ever said to anyone. Because, yeah, because Hi. it would be the first thing I said to anyone. Uh, no. Hi, I um, met Jeremy Brett once. I don't know whether you're aware, but the Granada in Granada Homes is uh-huh. uh, refers to Granada Studios. Yes. And commercial television in the UK started considerably after it did in other countries. Certainly in the US, for, you know, for years in the UK, we only had the BBC, which is publicly funded through the television license fee um so when we we eventually did get a third channel it was called itv for independent television and it was done on a regional basis so each region had its own to, i mean sim- similar to and i know it's uh, similar to the to the us just you know because of how big it is you know each state will have like its own tv networks yeah and there will be like affiliates to, to the larger networks and it was the, that was the case for itv so it, like the country, the country was broken up into regions that produced and broadcast their own programming. Some of it was region specific, but some of it was, you know, made for. Similarly to how um, BBC BBC Wales makes Sherlock, 
but it's broadcast you know for the whole nation and on like bbc america and sold to different countries now the granada region is the northwest of england which is where i live oh my goodness so i you know i live in the granada region and you could go to the granada studios and go on what they called the granada studios tour and you could see various things like uh probably the main one that people would go to was to uh the set of coronation street which is uh one of our long-running soap operas but you could also go to the baker street set and i did do you have did you have a picture did you take a picture of yourself? there probably is a picture of me somewhere in my family photo albums it was actually kind of funny because this was like i think this because this was after the show had gone off the air but they still had the set and it was like part of the tour and they'd actually turned 221b uh, into a restaurant so <laughs> i i have i have eaten the baked potato in the granada 221b baker street that's amazing it was quite an experience i don't i don't get it because it looked like an exterior it always looks like an exterior set but it's not it, it's it's an interior set but it was like lit and shot in such a way that made Trickery. it look, yeah the the magic of television <laughs> made it look like it was outside and it was quite surreal i imagine like the only other thing that i can i can kind of, that i can compare it to is like when i was a kid we went on a holiday to london and in one of the, like the museums they had a replica of i think it was the set of star trek the next generation <laughs> of the of the bridge set and that was weird because it's so bright yeah that it, well yeah there was that but also like just being physically in a space you've only ever seen on the tv yeah so that was kind of odd for me actually being on you know the street that i'd seen from watching the granada <laughs> homes it's trippy. It was po- possibly the closest thing I've ever had to a religious experience. That's amazing. I'm so <laughs> happy you got to experience that, and I am jealous. So, thanks. If it's any consolation, the baked potato wasn't very good. Oh, well, no. <laughs> you can't have everything. <laughs> you would have ascended right then. If the baked potato was good. I'm never leaving. I'm safe right here. I, I, w- I would have achieved something similar to Nirvana. <laughs> Yeah. God. Uh, okay, so here's a fun tidbit. Jeremy Brett's Holmes like lives in my mind's eye. Okay, his 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 face, his voice, his mannerisms is Holmes. <laughs> if I ever read a guy Holmes, like it, if I'm reading a Sherlock, BBC Sherlock fic, it's it's still it's Brett in my head. If I'm reading an elementary fic or something, guess who's there? It's Brett in my head. <laughs> like I can't shake the man out like he's just Holmes if it's if I'm not visually looking at some other actor being Holmes if I'm reading it that's who it is that's wild that's crazy I don't know how that happened (laughs) he like nested in there he just lives in there now which I'm not complaining but it's still weird because once in a while I'll be reading a fic and then it'll be like Joan and I'm like oh shit that's right (laughs) oh god do you have that problem a little bit I've, I, mm. More so because I I don't really I I I've never sort of read um any fan fiction based on like the modern Sherlock Holmes, um, but if <sighs> I will read most Sherlock Holmes books and not just the ones by Conan Doyle and in all of yes. them. Yes, see, I'm the opposite. I went into the fan fiction world and I read <laughs> a shit ton of that, and then on the like pastiche pastiche side, I can't. 
<laughs> I don't I haven't read a whole lot. I've done a few, but not a whole lot. I've read a shit ton, and yeah, <laughs> yeah in opposite. every yeah, in every like single it. one of them, it kind of. I mean, obviously, it probably comes from you know watching the Granada series as a very small child, but it's it's impossible for me to visualize Holmes really as anyone other than Jeremy Brett. Yeah. Or, you know, it's definitely working from, like, a Jeremy Brett template. Yeah, that's, you know, yeah, I mean, I don't explicitly see his face, but that's, you know, who it is. That's who my mind's eye knows who it is. <laughs> yeah, and he will be, like, older or younger. Accordingly. As as the, the particular narrative demands. <laughs> He's one of my bisexual heroes. I have a list. He's on there. <laughs> who doesn't? <laughs> Thank you. We've all got I one. I think so. <laughs> and that's my list. Honorable mention goes out to Sherlock Holmes's smarter brother by gene wilder yes a fantastic film yes people some people hate that movie i'm like (laughs) what no (laughs) how (laughs) i know how but still why (laughs) i do have to say possibly like what my favorite part of that film is uh leo mckern as moriarty (laughs) mostly for for his he has a great condition He's yeah. He, he has a great speech about how his villainy is kind of pathological. You get, kind of got the impression that if if he if he had his way, he wouldn't be a criminal mastermind. But he's kind of like psychologically compelled to be one. Um, also, the they they have a scene of uh, where the uh, Dom DeLuise is in it, and he's a sort of actor manager, like an impresario, and he's like translated uh, an opera badly into English. So you have people <laughs> singing opera, but it's it's in English and it just sounds wrong, and it's wonderful. Oh, why and, don't why don't we all drink some sexy wine? Yeah, that's literally <laughs> the line I was thinking of. <sighs> to the Man. point where I think it's like I think like Albert Finney has a cameo as just a guy who just turns to the camera and says, "This is a bit shit, isn't it?" <laughs> and then yeah. just, I can't remember exactly what he says, but that's basically the gist of it. It's like the movie just stops and someone in the movie just turns to the audience and is like, you seeing this? Yeah. That's kind of why I like the film, though, because it's so arch and yeah. ridiculous. Like the opening scene with Lord, uh, whoever the guy is, in Queen Victoria. Oh, yeah, I can't remember who. He goes, woof, when he realizes what he said was completely yeah, played um mixed played by and... uh, John the Measurer who's an actor you'll be very familiar with uh to to a british audience but yeah so that was <laughs> Queen just... Victoria goes he... shit yeah <laughs> Queen so Victoria funny. like face palms and says shit it's it perfectly captures the tone of what is to come in the film oh, exactly um, yeah i think possibly my absolute favorite moment from the film comes not too long after that where it's Holmes and Watson the actual you know actual Holmes and Watson sitting in front of a fire in uh, in Baker Street and there's uh, one of Moriarty's henchmen is like peering through the keyhole at them and you know Holmes is like is writing on his lap and then he sort of holds it up and he's holding up like a, a thing he's holding up a card to Watson and he's written on it it's like it says something like you know murderer six foot four walks with a limp outside the room and Watson's sort of like smiling and he just sort of reads it and then he goes oh Jesus Christ and then Holmes flips the card over and it says act natural and Watson's like but it's cold outside. Yeah. It's yes. It's such it's it's such a ridiculous film, but it has such a brilliant it has such a brilliant cast that <laughs> any any shortcomings it may have otherwise had are rendered completely invalid. Because you've got Gene Wilder as the titular Sherlock Holmes' smarter brother. Madeline Kahn. Yeah, Madeline Kahn. 
as as a musical performer. She's so um, amazing. I love she her is. so and, much. And um, <laughs> Marty Feldman, uh, yes, playing <laughs> the Lestrade-esque character. Yeah, he, he's like he's almost like Gene Wilder's Watson, almost in a sense. He's like both though, because he's like yeah. the Watson, but then he's <laughs> he's the... he's a I think he's a police sergeant, and he's got an an idactic memory. It's amazing. They they even do like a they even kind of do like a, a piss take of um, raffles. When yeah. um, Sigerson and uh, Saka have to break into Dom DeLuise's house, and they they dress up essentially as Raffles and Bunny to do it, uh, and they end up getting the back of their suits cut off by a circular saw, I seem to recall, and you see their bare asses. Yes, <laughs> it's a good fun movie for everyone. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's ridiculous, and I love it. Um, oh yeah, it's and every, everyone should see it out there. Well, this is going to be easier for me to approach because we've kind of already talked about two of the things that were on my list. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> I sort of wasn't able to... Whenever I make a list like that, I tend to... It's hard. I, I tend not to sort of, like, number them individually and sort of work out a hierarchy. You know, I'll usually, like, either list them, like, in a completely arbitrary order or, like, alphabetically. Sometimes that's what chronologically. you have to do to get through it. <laughs> You can't actually like list it. I made I made a big effort though. I tried real hard to like make some kind of order. So one of my other ones uh, is the Mary Russell series. Yes, by Laurie R. King, uh, which, as I'm pretty sure we've mentioned before, is um, something that I have shoved towards Christie and gone look this a while ago. Yeah, that was like December. I didn't think it Maybe. was because it was. I'm sure it was part of your year of book thing. I'm pretty sure yes. I recommended it to you after yes. the Farseer trilogy, uh, so af- after uh, the Robin Hobbs Realm of the Elderlings. So yeah, that was that's after. Christmas, it will have been sure. sometime this. It'll be, it will have been sometime this year. So the Mary Russell series. It's by uh, Laurie R. King. It's about a young woman who's been orphaned and she's living with her aunt, who is a real piece of shit by all accounts, um, <laughs> and. Uh, she lives with her aunt in Sussex, and one day she goes walking on the downs and she trips over a man painting bees. And not like painting pictures of bees, like physically applying paint to, to actual Bunch bees. Of bees. And it turns out to be uh, Sherlock Holmes in his retirement. They initially get very cross with each other because she gets pissed off with him because she tripped over him and him for the same reason. But, you know, coming at it, approaching it from different sides. Eventually they become like friends and then colleagues because he takes it sort of on himself to like instruct her in the science of deduction. And uh, the first book in the series is called uh, The Beekeeper's Apprentice. And it, you know, and it deals with their, them meeting and developing a, a relation. Yeah, like de- <laughs> developing a rapport and a relationship. And then a few chapters in the the cases start and we start to see like more of the the Sherlock Holmes structure appear where you know there is a crime and they go and solve it they go check it out yeah yeah and um the thing that i like most about mary russell as a character is probably the thing that a lot of people dislike about her is she feels very fan fiction and i say that as only a positive thing I agree. There will surely have been accusations calling Mary Russell a Mary Sue. Uh, 
That's like the most instantaneous thing I'm pretty sure that happened to that character. <laughs> without a without a beat at all. Someone heard the synopsis and said, So Mary Sue. <laughs> like that's literally I have no doubt in my mind. Someone reading the back jacket. <laughs> Yeah, the first time I read The Beekeeper's Apprentice, as much as I was enjoying it, I was also kind of afraid for it. I felt like, I felt very protective of it, because I knew exactly the criticisms that would be made serious and boring people who would not hold at all with the idea of this, you know, young woman talking back to Sherlock Holmes, and the, you know, the approach that was taken to Holmes as a character. With Within, after reading three chapters of Beekeeper's Apprentice, I thought to myself, man, the internet's going to be intolerable about this series. (laughs) That's the thing. I've never dared to look. This'll just be for me and anyone in my life who I I know will be cool about it. Here's the rounds. Okay, so I finish a book and I go, oh, I really like that. Or I go, oh, I freaking hated this. And I go online. I go, first stop. Let's go check out Goodreads. Let's see what these losers... (laughs) have to say in their reviews and i'll scan like whatever the most popular ones i'm like okay 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 and then i'll do like a deeper dig where if it's a more popular series i'll be like you know let's just let's see what reddit has to say i'm sure they're so well informed there let's go check them out let's see what they have go there check it out i'm like you're all idiots leave there i go somewhere else like that's just what i do and i can't stop maddie i keep doing it (laughs) sometimes i'm pleasantly surprised and other times i'm completely thrown for a loop i'm like i can't believe no one likes this I feel so alone and foreign now. I didn't five minutes ago before I got on the internet, but now I do. And then other times I know exactly <laughs> what they're going to say. And this was one of the ones where I was like, I don't even need to go online, but I'm going to confirm that everyone's an asshole. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure if, if I ever find myself needing to be made absolutely furious, I'll go and read the TV tropes entry for the Mary Russell series. Yeah. Which will probably, um, which will probably uh, leave me in a state of high dudgeon, I'm sure. <laughs> But yeah, similarly to what we talked about with Elementary, the reason, one of the main reasons that I like the Mar- like Mary Russell as a character and the series is that it has the confidence to, it's like certainly after the first book, which is, you know, is establishing the, the characters and their relationships in, this, in the setting. And it's very, you know, it's much more willing to focus solely on Mary. Yeah. There are several books in the series which are focus, you know, predominantly on mary where where holmes he pops in and out yeah he's you know he's got his own sort of things going on because um they're written from the first person perspective of mary so if holmes is off doing his homesy things then you know she sort of convenes with him and the most interesting thing that the mary russell series does is and this is and i know this this would this is a sentence that's gonna annoy people i know but the fact that Mary Russell replaces Watson as yeah. Holmes's, you know, partner and confidant and chronicler, and you see, you know, you get a very, very different perspective. The ve- because of the differences between Mary and Watson, you know, like age and gender and background and ability. Yeah, she she has a very, very different viewpoint on things. I mean, and like she she would you know she refers to Watson's writings differences of opinion that she has with Watson both like in terms of you know worldview and also as it relates to Holmes (laughs) the whole sort of point really of the series I think is seeing Sherlock Holmes through new eyes and the series does that really well 
it shows, you know, a dimension of Holmes that wasn't in Conan Doyle's stories, which I kind of think, you know, is is the point of adaptations and expansions on, you know, Sherlock Holmes does have that, like, mythic quality. Absolutely. He is, you know, part of, not not, not just British mythology, for want of a better term, but, you know, because of the, the worldwide popularity of the books. I mean, I know we've sort of talked about it before, but the fact that the, you know, mimetic image of a detective is essentially Sherlock Holmes. He, you know, him being visual shorthand for the type of character that he is. Having any version of Sherlock Holmes make you see the character in a new way is always going to be interesting. And that, that for me, is, is the, the greatest strength of the Mary Russell series in that it shows you a different facet of the character of Sherlock Holmes by not just examining him through the character of Mary Russell, but providing the contrast between her and Holmes and demanding that you be as, if not more, invested in Mary in the stories than in Holmes. It It's a bit cheeky, and I think that rubs people the wrong way. You know, you have, the, you have this amazing Holmes in the story, and you're being asked to focus not on him, but, you know, his protege instead. And I think that instantaneously rubs some folks the wrong way on paper and then if they actually read it in how it's done because <laughs> it's not subtle about it the series isn't like it doesn't lean into it at all it's like this is her story from the start yeah to make sherlock holmes a supporting cast member of someone else's story is the kind it, it's the kind of thing i don't think many writers would have the <laughs> confidence to do and the fact that laurie king has done it and has done it so well yeah. I think, you know, speaks to her abilities as a writer. But for some some people aren't going to see that, and that's their loss, to be quite honest. Yeah. In my, in my research <laughs> of these books, um, of course you have, you know, the vocal people and um, a lot of Mary Sue thrown around. But on the other hand, these books sell really well. They have fans. They have, you know, a Mary Russell club. Like, they, there is a base for it, and the majority of them you know, based on what I can figure out from online, are women. <laughs> and a lot of them, and a lot of that is, I think, King herself being like, people are going to say she's a Mary Sue. You know, that's fine. <laughs> she kind of is. That's that's what I was going for. Like, I don't think she's named Mary entirely by accident. I don't think um, a lot of things are by accident and i think she's an author that's very very aware of how she's annoying certain people certainly in this it's an example of how what some people would see as the shortcomings of a character or a book series is going to be the appeal for someone else and i think lots of people especially yeah women will find the idea of you know of what the mary russell books are doing to be very appealing. Yeah, and it was the the second book, A Monstrous Regiment of Women, um, where I was like, oh damn, she's not playing. <laughs> like, like Lord King is, she's here to stay, and she's here to say some things. <laughs> I uh, really like that one the most. Still, I think it's still my favorite. I've read up to Jerusalem, Oh Jerusalem, which is like a kind of... Yeah, Oh Jerusalem's a really interesting one because it's yeah. kind of like, it's a flashback that deals with something that happens in the first book they go and do a thing but you're not told what the thing is and then like several i think it's like five books five or six books in 
<laughs> she goes, okay, here's yeah. what they did when they went to do the thing. And uh, and it's really good. And it's interesting to, you know, because you have the way that the characters have developed and the, and the way that their dynamic has evolved, you kind of have it almost like reset, but not chronologically in the narrative. It's like you get, you kind of, it's almost kind of like, hey, did you like how the dynamic between them was in the first book? Here's more of that. <laughs> Have you read The Moor? Yes. I couldn't remember if that was before or after Jerusalem. It's before. That's possibly what I think that might be one of my favorite Mary Russell books. What a strange little a book that is. I mean, I it's one of the ones where initially I was like, I don't think I like this one as much. And then towards the end, I was like, oh, I really like this one. I don't know when it happened. Like, it was so weird. <laughs> yeah, because it's kind of a sequel to The Hound of the Baskervilles. But yeah, in a really weird way. And um, one of the things that I liked is that it has the uh, it has as a character uh, the Reverend Sabine Baring Gould, oh, who God. was a real yeah. person. Um, yes, and I think is he Holmes's godfather? Am I remembering that? Yeah. Yes. Um, what an interesting thing is that uh, William S. Baring Gould wrote Sherlock Holmes of Baker Street, which is the one of the first examples of a Sherlock Holmes biography that approaches Holmes from the perspective of being a real person so it's like it's a biography of a fictional character but it's written as if he's a real person so and that that was kind of a very that that was a really interesting thing to do um it doesn't it doesn't like come up very much in the Mary Russell books like they will tend to rarely cross paths with real historical people but they do occasionally, and when they do, it's very interesting. In- interesting things that they do is they will very, very rarely cross paths with real historical people, but they do occasionally cross paths with other fictional characters. Yes, which is always fun. I think it's in the third book, A Letter of Mary. Yes, that... they run into... Um... Yeah, uh... Uh, Mary runs into Lord Peter Whimsey. Yes, that's him. Who is, is not named as such due to copyright um but we know it's it it's, it's that kind of they, she runs into peter <laughs> yeah who is a lord <laughs> kind of irresistible i think in a way for you know writers to i mean you, you have like the the kim newman approach when he you know he writes um his uh anno dracula books uh and also stuff like the league of extraordinary gentlemen where it's like okay all of this stuff <laughs> happened in the same universe even the contradictory stuff. It all yeah, still happens. It's all there. Yeah. It's not the book after O Jerusalem, but I think it's the one after that. Uh, it's called The Game, uh, which is set in India. And one of the characters in it is, is, is not sort of the focus, but part of the backstory of the book. It was involved in the event that set up the story of that that book deals with is uh, Kimball O'Hara who is the main character of Kim by Rudyard Kipling. Ah. So, it, it, again, it's that kind of... The, the temptation that I think is... That must be there. I would I would really like it if there eventually is a Mary Russell book that features Arsene Lupin as a character. I think... That'd be amazing. For me, that would, that, that would be the ultimate temptation. Just to see what she'd make of him. <laughs> And it it sounds weird to say it, but I like Mary Russell books because they seem so much like fan fiction. Not weird at all. I'm, I'm Not, with you there completely. You know, but they're like fan fiction that is 
meticulous. <laughs> like, it's hard to describe uh, if you haven't already read them. These books are... <sighs> I'm always blown away how it's enjoyable on the surface level as a Mary Russell story. It's enjoyable as a big fan of Sherlock Holmes and getting to see Sherlock Holmes from a different perspective. It's enjoyable as... In a lot of the time, what I would now the cool kids describe as being very meta. It's it, it does a lot of interesting things. Again, like with the second book, I, the Monstrous Regiment of Women, I I wrote way more than I expected to when I did like a kind of write up on the book. And one of the things that was so fascinating is it feels like her second book is a response to the Mary Russell is a Mary Sue argument. In the sense that the whole book's about Mary going into an organization and kind of inserting herself into this already established place and, you know, using her powers to, <laughs> her powers, using her ability to, um. <laughs> I think powers is fine. Yeah, pretty much. Like, you, pretty you much. Say superpowers. Yeah, and using her powers to solve a mystery on her own without Sherlock really being there at all. He's hardly in that book. Um. He was very prominent in the first book. In the second book, he suddenly just kind of drops off the face of the earth. This is a true Mary Russell thing. She's going into a place she's not wanted or, or you know, she's hiding her identity. Um, and it doesn't work out for her well. And it feels like this strange comment on women's place, not only in this time period, not only in this story, but this character's place in the Sherlock world. Like, why can't you insert this other character you know, why do we have to reject this other character? It's, I don't know, it's 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 hard to explain. It's very, very interesting. You know, like, how do you how do you get more women in, in, into Sherlock Holmes stories? Because we've talked about that before, too. You get that fun subtext where it's like, well, there's no women around ever at all. <laughs> so, that's kind of odd. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and and yeah. it feels like Mary Russell is saying, well, you have to write them in. Just just add and insert yourself or uh, your character into these stories and it'll be okay. Like, you can do it. It's fine. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I bungled that one there, but that's what I always feel some of the background radiation of, of Mary Russell's stories is this kind of wider commentary on women using someone else's or, you know, doing this type of thing where they have a, their own character put into a famous story or their own character based on, you know, a famous story. When guys do it, it feels like it's common, normal and whatever. No one cares. If a woman does it, it's suddenly like a big deal. You, you never kind of hear these criticisms leveled against somebody like Dante <laughs> or Byron. So that you know, there definitely is like a gendered <laughs> element to it. Um, the thing that I like about Monstrous Regiment of Women is that, like you said, it it feels like a response to criticisms of Mary as a character. It it's not so much a capitulation where she's going. It you know she doesn't necessarily need to be closely involved with Sherlock Holmes to be a compelling protagonist in a story. But it's I I think it's coming from a place of. Mary is the important one in this story, more so than Sherlock Holmes. Yes. And I think, you know, that takes a lot of confidence as a writer. Because I think the majority of people who would read Mary Russell books would do so because they're fans of Sherlock Holmes and they want that new kind of perspective. And, to, to, you know, to to understand that that's probably where the majority of your audience is going to come from and 
to approach it with like I am you know it's essentially the 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 writer saying I am confident that you will be sufficiently invested in my OC yeah, yeah. That, that you won't mind that Sherlock Holmes is hardly in the story and I think that that's why I really love not just that book but the whole series and Mary and, as a character and, and confidence is honestly justified like you I I have difficulty feeling like some someone has to go into a Mary Russell book already not wanting to like her and actively pushing away and rejecting this character constantly to not be taken in by them I, I, it's kind of like and, and, and if you are going in with that kind of feeling why are you even going in in the first why place you, yeah other than just to be able to say hey Mary Sue <laughs> it's not as if you know there there is a scarcity of Sherlock Holmes stories even Sherlock Holmes stories not by Conan Doyle that are about Sherlock Holmes yeah you know there are literally hundreds if not thousands but you know this one thing that doesn't you know that approaches it in a different way but that's the thing I like I said I've deliberately never <laughs> I've deliberately never like gone looking for discussion of these <laughs> books online because I know it's going to be shitty and stupid. It, it 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 is, and then everyone then 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 there's other ones where there it it's like the books were more popular than I assumed they would be at the same time. So it was also really nice to have that confirmation that there are people that like these books and love this character just as much as us and just as much as the author oh yeah i mean there's like over 10 books in the series now yeah i mean i imagine you're not making 10 books without <laughs> no, nobody writes support. like 10 plus books if there's no market for it yeah <laughs> but but you know sometimes with books especially it's it feels so isolated like you don't actually have a gauge of what do other people think of this or like has anyone else ever read this or like you know like that so it's a uh, it's a fun time <laughs> So another one okay. on my list uh, is uh, is another book. Oh boy! It's one that I've talked about before, uh, but I'm going to sort of go into in a bit more depth. Uh, that is the Canary Trainer by Nicholas Meyer, uh, who's probably most famous in sort of Holmesian circles as the writer of the Seven Percent Solution, mm-hmm. which is I don't know if crossover is quite the is quite the right term, but uh, it's essentially a crossover between. Uh, Sherlock Holmes and Sigmund Freud. Yes, I've where, seen the movie. Um, God, the movie's so weird. <laughs> it's a go. Um, if if you don't know, uh, Nicholas Meyer is uh, a writer and uh, director. Uh, most people, I think, would be familiar with his work on the Star Trek movies. He basically either wrote, directed, or wrote and directed the ones that people say are the good ones. <laughs> So Two. the even the even numbered ones, uh, he wrote and directed Wrath of Khan. He wrote Voyage Home, and he wrote and directed The Undiscovered Country. And he's a big Sherlock Holmes fan. And his father was a psychiatrist. Some of his like father's observations about Freud, like turn up in his, you know, Sherlock Holmes books. So he wrote the Seven Percent Solution, which kind of like was an attempt to almost like you know psychoanalyze Holmes as a character and you know does very sort of you know I think you know does more daring things with the source material than something like the Mary Russell books yeah for sure in my opinion but because like it's a more 
male coded story and written by a man i don't think it will you know it nets the same kind of criticism it doesn't register on the same level to people but my favorite book uh of his is the canary trainer which is another crossover this time it's crossing over with the phantom of the opera by gaston larue oh that's right this is the one i have to read i have to read this yeah i have to please remind me i have to (laughs) so it takes place during the period where Holmes is believed to be dead. In Switzerland, he finds himself in Paris, and he sort of is wondering how to fill his days um, now that Sherlock Holmes is dead. So he sort of thinks about what he can do. It's like, it's like, well, I could be a detective, but I don't know Paris as well as I know London, and inevitably, someone's going to recognise me. Yeah, I'm out here solving a crimes. 15 a day. So he kind of like considers what other marketable skills he has. And he eventually realizes that, you know, aside from deduction, his main skill is playing the violin. Because obviously, love that that's the next one. <laughs> like that's yeah, it. because so, obviously, like in the you know in the books, Holmes played the violin. So uh, he initially sets himself up as a teacher, but his landlady she likes hearing him play the violin. She doesn't like hearing people who don't know how to play the violin try to play the violin. Yeah. Uh, so eventually Holmes goes for uh, an audition to join the orchestra of the uh, the opera Garnier, the Paris opera. And he, he goes into the to the room where the auditions are being held and there's a screen in the corner and then a commanding voice issues from behind the screen and instructs him to play a scale, which he does. The, the, the voice instructs him to play a scale again, which he does. So he gets commanded by this, un, you know, by this hidden person in the opera who's conducting the auditions and at the end of his audition the person behind the screen stands up and comes around and it's Gaston Leroux who in this (laughs) is the orchestra manager which you know Leroux never was he was a journalist who became a novelist but he's inserted into the story as a member of staff of the of the opera house and then the the Phantom of the Opera you know essentially the plot of Phantom of the Opera starts happening (laughs) with Sherlock Holmes on the premises and he's like okay that's kind of is that a a ghost yeah sure so you (laughs) you do you essentially have Sherlock Holmes just dropped into the plot of Phantom of the Opera and it's done so well Phantom of the Opera is a very very weird book oh it's the weirdest book that doesn't (laughs) it kind of doesn't know what it wants to be as a book it's like is it gothic is it like what what (laughs) what's it doing because it's almost there but it's still not quite you know making the qualifications totally yeah and it's kind of not really resolved in that you you don't have Holmes like unraveling the mystery because the phantom of the opera the book like as it stands it leaves a lot of things unanswered and the canary trainer doesn't really if anything it poses more questions when it finishes because the story is like constructed in such a brilliant way and it and it is really weird but also interesting and fun to see Holmes interacting with, you know, characters like Christine Daae and Raoul de Chagny and <laughs> what and what he makes of them. And it's kind of it it's funny to have Holmes as an outside observer where he thinks, you know, and to get his perspective on the characters, his opinion of Raoul as being young and infatuated and, you know, Christine as being, you know, naive and like alarmingly credulous. Um, <laughs> but it it does, you know, and it has like brilliant like footnotes uh, because again, it, it approaches it from the perspective of Holmes as a real person. Uh, and it mentions things like, 
the orchestra being uh, sketched by Degas. Yeah. And Holmes being part of it. And, yeah, you know, like people have, you know, and it, there's a footnote in the book that says people have been searching for years to try and find a sketch of, you know, Sherlock Holmes by Degas and, and stuff like that. And obviously being in an opera house, it, it, it introduces Irene Adler into the mix. And this is kind of my favourite use of Irene Adler, but, you know, outside of A Scandal in Bohemia. Because, um, as we've talked about before, I really don't like it when people take the Catwoman approach to <laughs> Irene Adler. Yeah. Like, they make her Sherlock Holmes's Catwoman essentially and i'm kind of not down for that because that's not who that's really not who she was as a character no I, so they, if you do if you do get irene adler in like stories by other hands they kind of they often do make her like they yeah. often make her a, make her a criminal which she wasn't yeah really. that's the thing is irene adler was an honorable person she she bests homes on her at his his own best abilities observation suspicion and disguise like Doyle doesn't imply that Irene is inferior, inferior or a, like a lowly criminal. He frames her with intellect and in her romantic conquests as something that's good, like as someone worthy of praise and the freedom she's earned. Like I I I hate when modern adaptations <laughs> paint Irene Adler as like this sexy criminal adventurer, <laughs> jewel thief <laughs> person just like you do. Sorry, I just had to say that because... It's no, like, no, that's, I, I completely agree. But um, the reason that I like the Canary Trainer is that it introduces Irene Adler in her natural habitat. She was an opera singer. And this is a story that takes place in an opera. Yeah. So it would it would be ridiculous if she wasn't in it, in a way. And obviously she recognises Sherlock Holmes yeah. immediately. And she's like, I don't know what you're doing, but... You know, I'm down. If you, <laughs> nice. if you want, if you want, if you want to be dead, you must have your reasons. So don't worry, I'm not going to dob you in. <laughs> She's like been there. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So she kind of becomes like an ally to him in the story, and it's it's done so interestingly. And again, it it should it should. I know for some people it would probably be too, you know, gimmicky. And, oh, it and... sounds so much like something I would enjoy i love the fan of the opera book weirdness and all you know for the more sort of like you know snobbish Holmes fan they would probably view this as something on the level of like abbott and costello meet frankenstein something <laughs> like that to drop Holmes into another story like this but it it, it worked because I mean, obviously because i love sherlock Holmes, i love phantom of the opera so those two things together it, it, it's similar to things like uh there's a book called uh dr jekyll and mr Holmes. I've heard, I've seen that one, but I haven't read it. <laughs> Again, it's literally just the strange case of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, but Holmes and Watson are involved. <laughs> oh God! And there's stuff like um, the Dracula tapes by uh, Fred Saberhagen, which again is the plot of Dracula, but Holmes and Watson are involved. That sounds fun. And it it's very fun, and it it's gonna be it's one of those things where it's not for everyone. I think it's it's probably definitely gonna be for you. Um, yeah. Sounds and like. it, it's kind of you know and, and the way that it's written you don't need to have read um, i know um, the way that the canary train is read i mean it, oh. it's it works as a sequel to the seven percent solution but you don't have to have read the seven percent solution it works just as well as you know it, it slots in perfectly with you know if, if you if your only familiarity with sherlock holmes is conan doyle's 
stories, you could read the Canary Trainer. You wouldn't need any, you know, there might be, there'd be like a couple of illusions that you wouldn't fully understand, but still kind of, you know, make a kind of sense. They're not in so the context that, they're, that it's going to... Yeah, you know, it's not as if you'd be unable to follow the story. This was kind of a bit, it, it it's a bit more straight in terms of a Sherlock Holmes story, despite the fact that he's not, you know, calling himself Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. The most interesting thing about it is that it's it's presented as the it has like a framing device of it's a story that Holmes is recounting to Watson when he comes back from the dead. You know, <laughs> uh, it's set it's it's uh, the framing device is is set in Holmes' retirement in Sussex, and it's framed as a story he's relating to Watson. So it's uh, it's in the first person from Holmes's point of view, which. As far as I'm aware, Conan Doyle only did once, or yeah. maybe twice. I think only it might be twice. Is it twice? I think it's I possibly it once. But um, no one liked it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you like a Sherlock Holmes story to be about someone else, just you know, observing and describing Sherlock Holmes, this won't be for you. But if you want to read a story from Holmes's perspective, and to to have a story told to you in Holmes's voice is definitely interesting. I don't know if I've ever read anything like that outside of a fan fiction. You know what I mean? Like it's Holmes's voice. I mean, it sounds. I doesn't affect me at all. <laughs> there's no there's no reasonable metric that you could apply where something like the Canary Trainer isn't fan fiction. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's I, a double. I, it's double fan fiction. It's, it's fan fiction of two things. It's, it's a crossover fan. Fic. Fiction. Yeah. yeah. It's it's funny though, because like in my head, fan fiction I mean like unpublished for free work <laughs> typing. Like that's kind of how I classify it in my head. Because when we talk about this stuff, it all is. I mean it is. It's the same thing for the most part. They're just got paid and it's put in a book. Like that's the only difference. <laughs> it's it's one of those things, the canary trainer. I don't I don't think it's it's not for everyone, but That's like homes on the range. <laughs> yeah. They're gonna hear it, it they're gonna be like I don't know about that. Like, if you have any doubts, don't bother. It's fine. Like, just skip it. It's okay. If you need any information other than Sherlock Holmes versus the Phantom of the Opera, this probably isn't the book for you. Yeah. If you're not on board by then, then, you know. I'm not sure we could be friends. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, the interesting thing is that it's not the only Holmes versus Phantom book. Uh, there is another one. Really? Called The Angel of the Opera by Sam Siciliano, uh, which I bought, but I've never read beyond the prologue because it introduces an OC who is Holmes's cousin, and it kind of frames it as he was Holmes's like real best friend and confidant, and oh, Watson wasn't. Oh, you've told me about this before. Yeah, yeah, and I, it offended me to my very core. <laughs> just the prologue that's impressive as far as i'm concerned if you write a sherlock holmes thing where watson is not of equal importance to holmes then you can fuck off as far as i'm concerned yeah nicholas nicholas meyer actually uh, in the seven percent solution actually addresses things like you know people who say that you know oh you know watson was an idiot and holmes only kept him around so he could get cocaine Whereas, you know, Nicholas Meyer points out, like, if he wanted cocaine, he could just go to a pharmacy and buy it. Yeah. He could buy, he could buy it by the quart. You know, 
it wasn't a controlled substance. And he actually has a line in the 7% Solution where Watson saves Holmes' life. And, you know, Holmes says to him, you know, ne- never let them say you are only my Boswell, Watson. Uh, which is a reference to you. Uh, Boswell was the biographer of uh, Samuel Johnson, who was uh, a writer uh, from the Regency period. He was the guy who wrote the English, the first English dictionary. And uh, Boswell was his chronicler. So Holmes, you know, t- so Meyer actually has Holmes say to Watson, don't ever let anyone say that you were just like my sidekick. <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you, you are as integral a part of our investigations as I am. So that was nice. Swinging back around to to Mary Russell, I like how it's set up. Initially, Mary assumes she's not going to like Watson because she doesn't particularly enjoy his his stories of Sherlock and stuff. And uh, it turns out that she's completely charmed. (laughs) Um, There's also the the element of, uh, of jealousy. Yeah. Because, you know, he has, like, a history and friendship with Holmes that she doesn't... Doesn't understand or wasn't there for, you know. Yeah, they, they've they got, like... Again, it's like, you know, Holmes and Watson have that history where, you know, but Watson is so, like, open and friendly to her that she can't help but like him. Because I was kind of worried that, you know, because... Me she, too. Yeah, I was reading it and I was like, please let her like Watson. It's important to me that she likes Watson. And when she does, you know, to the extent that, you know, she calls him Uncle John. Yeah. I was like, no. Oh, and their their relationship's really very sweet. And she's never, you know, condescending to Watson. If you have a character in, a, in one of these type of things and they're condescending to Watson, it's just the biggest red flag ever where you're like, whoa, whoa, <laughs> back up. You need to calm down. It's like kick, it's like kicking a dog. I don't understand how people could do it <laughs> and not just, immediately just kill themselves. It's um, not good. Like how dare you? So I understand your visceral offense to this prologue. Yeah, it's like you you had you had a chance to to really pull me in with this, and you fucked it in like <laughs> the first three pages. Good job. Now I wasn't sure what to put as a fifth one Let's before think. before today oh. because today <gasps> i read a study in scarlet women oh my god the which... only reason i didn't put that one down is because i wanted to do homes on the because <laughs> i wanted to say it <laughs> now the uh, listeners with good memories will remember that that was the book that you recommended to me in the first episode of Sherlocktober. yes which we will be discussing in the following episode. So, uh, I'm going to defer uh, my opinions on it <sighs> until until the next time just, we no, record. Just a little bit, just a little, just a little taste. Just tell me, tell me, you enjoyed it. Obviously, you're putting it on. Yeah. List. Well, I will. I will say. All I'll say about it oh. is. I read it cover to cover in one go. <laughs> Me too, as best I could. Like, in in you know in in a few hours, I absolutely devoured this book. So, and I just I just I know we're not gonna talk we're not gonna talk about it because we have a whole other thing to do. <laughs> That's but a whole Watson, other episode. Watson. Yeah. Watson. <laughs> yeah. That's all I have to say. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> yeah. So. 
if you want to find out what what all that's about, yes, uh, join us for the next and final episode of Sherlock October 2017. <laughs> um, so until then, I'm Matty, and I've been talking to Christy, who is my lovely friend. So until the next time we meet together, bye. Aloha.